What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Hidden Falls Media Experience episode. Today, we are joined by Roger Dooley. But before we get into today's episode, I want to remind you of the fee. That's right. We're going to charge you right up front, but it's $0.99 because all we ask out of you is that you go follow Roger, go follow his journey on social media, connect with him, go see what he's about because it's absolutely incredible the work and research that he's doing. Putting these books together is not an easy task, and as well as doing all the public speaking, Go give him some love. Go give his page a follow. And you're going to be really happy that you did because we're going to get into some really, really awesome neuromarketing stuff. We're going to get into some psychology stuff, which I know you all geek out about, especially as much as I do. So everybody, welcome Roger aboard. Roger, how are you, sir? Doing great, Alex. Thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks for the intro. I really enjoy connecting with the folks who are interested in my work. So uh, I definitely interact on LinkedIn, Twitter, and pretty much wherever else you can find me. Awesome. What do you think about Twitter? Do you still have the same like affinity to it that you first had when you started with it? Not quite as much. It's just, it seems like the algorithm has changed. The way people interact has changed. They've, uh, it's, it seems like it's a little bit harder to connect with people. You know, sometimes I, re I remember when in the early days, Guy Kawasaki tweeting your website would literally take your website down. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. You can have somebody with a million followers and they'll tweet out a link and it'll barely be a blip in your statistics. Yeah. And then it's just the evolution of it. Still, I think it's been a powerful medium. We've certainly seen in the last four years or so how important it was in U.S. politics. And I think it still works. It's just a little bit different than it used to be. It doesn't feel quite as uh, intimate or something or quite as interactive. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's, it's definitely a strange environment compared to all the other social media platforms. And it's one that I feel like people either really lean into or they totally just fly in the opposite direction and it doesn't even come back inside of their radar. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because we share a very similar interest, which is neuromarketing. And do you mind like breaking that down for the people inside of my audience that are either new to us joining in the side of this episode or I've never really heard about it or thought about marketing from a neuroscience perspective, kind of what that is? Sure. Well, I'll give you my take on it, Alex, which may not be the same as yours, because it seems like everybody has a little bit different idea of what neuromarketing consists of. And first of all, it's also called consumer neuroscience. So if somebody's heard of consumer neuroscience, that is kind of a synonym for neuromarketing, although maybe a little bit different emphasis. Uh, my definition is pretty simple. It's using our understanding of how the human brain works to do better marketing. And so that includes those sort of hard neuroscience tools of EEG or biometrics or fMRI to actually measure people's either brain activity or various biophysical metric activities or other things like eye tracking, facial expressions to using facial coding. All of these things are sort of the traditional neuromarketing toolkit. Not everybody uses all of them. Those are mainly useful for understanding how people are reacting to a particular ad, commercial, product, image. And it's, they're very interesting and useful tools in the hands of practitioners who know how to interpret the data. Because I mean, you can't just strap an EEG on somebody because uh, you're getting massive uh, flow of data coming out that looks like absolute garbage. You've got, got to have the right software and the right understanding to turn that into somehow saying, okay, well, this person is reacting in a positive way. They're engaged with that advertisement. 
their emotion, you know, they're having a particular emotional reaction or whatever. But uh, I also include using behavioral science tools. And what I found was when I wrote about principles that anybody could apply without going out and hiring uh, in initially 10 years ago, these neuromarketing studies were extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. They still are in some cases, but the tools were getting more accessible. But people wanted some rules that they could apply to create, say, a better ad, a better headline without going through a testing process each time. Because even big brands can't test everything they do. You know, they it, sometimes you have to say, okay, well, uh, based on what I know and my experience, this I think will work. And if you can bring in behavioral science principles, that can really give you a leg up over somebody just guessing. And of course, the kind of testing that I really recommend is uh, the very sort of simple digital testing that you can do in the form of A-B testing or similar testing that, you know, at very low cost, lets you see whether headline A is outperforming headline B or image A is doing better than image B. If you've got any kind of volume on your website or your mobile app, Uh, That's so simple and so effective. And you don't have to make that leap between, okay, we've measured this kind of response to our ad. Now we think this is what it means. If you can actually give people the options right in front of them, you'll see which one works better. There's no uh, linking, connecting the dots there. That's a really good way of defining neuromarketing and a lot cleaner than what I use. Uh, so I, I, thought might, that was, I thought that was I'm, pretty messy, Alex, actually. <laughs> I, I brought in a lot of different stuff there, but no, to me, it, it, it is kind good. of all-encompassing. Yeah, it, it really is. And one of the responses I get from a lot of individuals when I talk about this was, well, shouldn't all marketing agencies use this? And my response to them is, yeah, they should, but they don't, right? It's like all accountants should have experience dealing with the IRS. It doesn't mean that they all do. Right. Well, that's that's true. And of course, it's not just agencies. It's uh, in-house org groups as well. Yeah. Where, uh, and they're probably even more guilty, perhaps, sometimes of not using the science that's available to improve their marketing. But, you know, so much of the work in this space is done pretty much by guess and by gosh, where people go based on their experience or the sort of hippo decision effect where the highest paid person in the room is the one that makes the call on uh, what the campaign looks like, you know, rather than taking a more scientific approach, either in the initial phase, which could mean incorporating either some neuromarketing testing or incorporating some scientific principles in developing the content, or uh, on the back end of actually saying, okay, we've, we've got two or three alternatives here. We're going to test them and see which one performs best. One of the things I've noticed is that people feel like that this is out of their price range that having this type of service included or this type of methodology included in their marketing strategy is past the realm of small business, when in contrary, it's the exact opposite, in my opinion. Yeah, I I totally agree with that, Alex, because first of all, uh, anybody can go out and uh, buy some of the great books on the topic. I'm thinking uh, Cialdini's classic book, Influence, yeah. his later book, Persuasion. I'm excited to say that uh, Cialdini's got a new book coming out. Uh, it's actually... A, an update of influence, which I assume will incorporate his seventh principle, uh, unity, and probably some other more recent research too. But, uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, tools like that. We, uh, Danny Ariely's Predictably Irrational is not necessarily a great guide for marketers, but it is a good guide to understanding how people's thinking processes and decision-making processes uh, are not rational and logical all the time. 
uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. That's a, that's a, you know, it's a big book. And again, you know, maybe mm. not exactly a marketing manual, but it will really help you understand uh, the vagaries that are involved in human decision-making and give you a clue as to where you can start improving your own marketing. Uh, you've got some other tools. My own book, Brainfluence, is a hundred uh, kind of simple techniques for various areas in pricing, copywriting, uh, image selection, and so on, uh, that all incorporate that kind of science. And it's geared a little bit more toward the actual marketer uh, who's working as opposed to more you know, general scientific approach, which is what we get for most of the academics. I really liked your book, Brainfluence, for the reason of it's so simple to, the way that it's formatted and laid out is super easy to be like, all right, so what was that about? One of the senses, awesome. It's just straight there. And it acts as almost a tactical guide more than a straight read through, even though you can use it as a straight read through and it reads really well. Right. Well, thanks. You know, I designed it to be that way. And I encourage people to jump in, you know, if they are dealing with a pricing problem, you don't have to read the chapters that came before, just jump in and look at those little pricing techniques. And I wanted to be very bite-sized uh, bits of learning where you could learn about whatever the scientific principle or experiment was, and then immediately see how that could be applied in a real business situation. And uh, it took me a while to get there. I'd been working on that book for a while and was kind of stumped as to format. I started out writing about how the brain works and detailing different brain structures. And I, after getting about three chapters in, I said, business people don't want to read this. Uh, I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur myself. I've been an entrepreneur for boy 30 plus years. I was a corporate guy before that. And uh, you know, that to me was not what folks wanted to hear. They want to know, okay, what can you teach me that'll help me right now? Absolutely. I want to get into this idea of decoy marketing because I see it all around me. And it was one of those like big aha moments that I had within my own marketing career of like, just how simple one extra thing or one less thing in a row of products or on a menu board or, um, you know, even in a grocery store could be to totally transfer the buying experience. Can you get into a little bit about decoy marketing? Sure. Well, there's, there's actually a, a couple kinds uh, that are quite commonly used. Uh, one is from some work that was done by Dan Ariely. And he found that if you had two things that were quite similar, but one was a little bit better, that contrast would make the better one look a lot more desirable. So uh, he had a classic experiment where people were asked to subscribe to a financial publication, either internet only or print only uh, or both. And in one case, there was the print and subscription and the combination subscription were just a little bit apart. And that generated massively more uh, higher revenue than when people were just presented with the alternative between the two. Uh, and what was happening was when you've got these two alternatives that seem very comparable almost, but one's better. In this case, you know, the prices were, uh, I forget if they were very similar or identical. Suddenly the one looked like a huge bargain. Well, you're getting much more for the same price and it dramatically shifted the revenue profile. Another kind is to add a product at the higher end of your range. So maybe you've got a good product and a better product. And you see this often with things like uh, software as a service, where they'll have maybe three or four variations. I'll have a free or a beginner version of something, a very basic version of something. 
Uh, then they'll have the sort of mid-range version that they really expect to be the most popular. Uh, and what they can do is add then maybe an enterprise or a platinum edition that they really don't expect to sell any of or many of. But what that does is it, it positions the other one, instead of being at the high end of the product price range, it positions it uh, as a compromise. Well, it's not the cheapest, it's not the highest, it's in the middle. And that's based on some work that was actually not even a scientific experiment. It was a real world results from a direct marketing company that was selling appliances. I think it was bread makers or coffee makers, one or the other, bread makers, I think it was. And they had two models, they had a good model and a better model. And so they introduced one and they, they wanted to sell more. So they decided to introduce a high-end model. And what they found was uh, that that high-end model didn't sell worth a darn. They sold very few of those. But what they did see was there was a big uptick in sales for their previous most expensive model that was now the middle of the range. Because instead of being the Cadillac model, the high-end one, it was the compromise model. You know, just right, not too high, not, not too low. And, you know, that can work for anybody. So if, you know, you want to move your average sale up, sometimes introducing a higher-end product, even if you don't expect to sell it. I mean, you might surprise yourself and sell a bunch of them, which would be also probably a good result in most cases. But even if you don't sell any of those, uh, it may uh, move your average sale price up. Within all of this that you've really worked through, what have you found the most surprising? Well, I think after all the scientific work that's been published, after millions of books being sold, uh, after you know so much uh, being written about how our brains work and how people make buying decisions, how mar so many marketers still focus basically on persuading with features and benefits. Mm. Now, you can't ignore features and benefits. You're, depending on what, the, what you're selling, you know, those may be really important. If somebody's buying a piece of technical equipment or whatever, you know, it's, it's got to have the right characteristics of, or it's not going to work at all. You know, unless you're selling perfume, in which case you don't really talk about features and benefits much. That's all emotional selling. But, you know, if you're selling a product that does have those features, you tend to focus on them because you're proud of them. You know, you've been working on those. Your features are better than those of your competitors. You know, that's why you're proud of them. But often you need to focus on the, what's motivating the customer, those non-conscious motivators. In a B2B, in a B2C situation, consumer situation, it could mean, oh, you know, is a person looking for uh, prestige in some way? Do they want to show this off to other people? Uh, are they making an emotional buy that somehow this is going to make them feel good about themselves? You know, there are all these non-conscious things that can drive that purchase, depending on the, the product category that it's in. Even B2B customers, we think of them as being super rational. You know, you can, you can go online and look for a B2B buying journey. You'll find all these great charts showing exactly how B2B purchases are made. And, you know, you've got uh, complicated flow charts and, and certainly uh, that can be useful information. Sometimes these are convoluted processes with multiple layers of approval and so on. But it's important to remember that even then, these buyers are still human. You know, that industrial buyer is still not just worried about your product specifications. That person is worried about, will this purchase help them get promoted? Maybe we'll get them a raise. If it goes bad, could it get them fired or demoted or put them in their, at least in a bad light with their boss? You know, they have things too that if when you're in that sales process, whether it's in person or online or any other way, 
you know, you need to resolve these non-conscious motivators to, you know, let people know uh, if it's a job security issue, potentially uh, that, you know, this is a safe decision. The classic line was nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. And there was a lot of truth in that. You know, if you were trying to sell in the early days of computers against IBM, it was very difficult. You might have a better product that was cheaper, more powerful, uh, you know, with better service perhaps, but that buyer knew that if your project went south, everybody would ask, why didn't you just go with IBM? They're the market leader by far. Uh, and that's why for so long, IBM was dominant. And even today, you, know, you don't quite have that same situation in most industries, but still those same human concerns of the buyers exist. We talk about this a lot internally within our own platform and small ecosystem that we have of, we pull from Tony Robbins with this and his six human needs of the fact that no matter why a customer is coming to you, um, they're coming to you in some unconscious way or even consciously to fulfill one of these human needs, if not multiple. But what, I, what we found interesting was that people were attracted to some of these businesses based in different variables or different combinations of them. So the six are certainty, uncertainty, significance, growth, contribution, and love and belonging. And for whatever reason, people felt these deep emotional connections to each one of those with your brand. And when we could start to align these two to come together, it made the selling process and it made the marketing process a lot easier because we could get our customers to memorize who they're coming to do business with, what they're getting and why they're getting it. And that really started us leading down this train of thinking about marketing as a game of memorization. If that we could get our customers to memorize who we are, what we do, what we stand for, how it's going to impact their life, right? All, all the important questions we want them to be asking. If we can frame that in games of memorization around the six human needs, it actually makes for a really comprehensive marketing strategy. Because even if you're, even if you play around with the messaging, the words, the website layout, the funnel design, right? Whatever you're messing with, it never really shakes the core of that main underlying drive. Because I, you're right, I see a ton of businesses and marketers only pay attention to maybe the five to six percent of the brain that's actually conscious, and that depends on you know who you believe and what they actually think the amount of consciousness inside the brain is. Instead of hitting that massive back end in the limbic system to really drive a lot of these decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't uh, use that Tony Robbins system, but what I think it does is it forces you to think about these non-conscious aspects and like any process, you know, there, there are so many things in business. And I, th I think uh, strategic planning is uh, another example where, you know, strategic planning has gotten a bad name because nobody ever, plans never work out the way you expect, but the mere process of thinking about your business in a conscious way and looking at uh, some of the details is always beneficial, even if, that, you know, five-year sales forecast doesn't come to pass. You know, things happen in the marketplace, things happen in the world that change, uh, change up the whole game. Nevertheless, it's forcing you to think about it. I created my own little framework, the persuasion slide, that is four elements, which we don't have to go through, but each yeah, one has a conscious, it. well, we, each one has a conscious and a non-conscious component. Uh, and the reason I did that was for the same reason that I think you're talking about the Tony Robbins various uh, facets, the six facets are, uh, and it is to make people think, okay, I'm appealing to the conscious buyer in this way, but how at the same, in the same piece of marketing, am I appealing to those non-conscious processes? Mm. 
And it's going to, you know, that, that mix is going to vary. Like I said, for, for perfume, you're not going to be doing anything that's really conscious. You're not going to be talking about how uh, your product tested better in, uh, you know, I don't know, you have a blind smell test, but, uh, or that, you know, what percentage of various essential oils you have in your product versus your competition. You're going to use emotional imagery uh, that, you know, evokes some kind of a, an emotion, excitement, romance, adventure, something. You're going to show pictures of people that maybe the customer would like to be or would like to be with. So that's all non-conscious. But, you know, for most marketers, it isn't quite that simple. They've got to really work on both. And, uh, you know, I guess we want to hit the four elements of this persuasion slide very quickly. Gravity are the motivations that your customer is coming to you with. And they might include those six things from Tony Robbins as the, the non-conscious motivations. Uh, then you've got, of course, the conscious motivators. If, if somebody's buying a car, the car's got to be of the right size to accommodate their family and their dog and wherever they have to haul around. They wanted to have good fuel economy. It's got to be within their budget. So those are, those are all very important conscious aspects to it. But we know that people buy cars because they are excited by the appearance because they have offer prestige. When the neighbors see it in the driveway, maybe they think it'll make them look attractive to other people. You know, there's the uh, angle of the slide is the motivation that you're providing. And, you know, this is where when people arrive at your website or when they see your ad, this is sort of what you're adding to the mix in marketing your product. Again, conscious and non-conscious things. The nudge is at the top of the slide when mom or dad gives the kid a push. And in our case, that represents cutting the customer's attention. If it could be a pop-up ad, it could be a search ad, an email, a phone call, an in-person sales call, a visible call to action, a website. All these are nudges. And again, you can have conscious and non-conscious aspects to that nudge. Some are pretty obvious. Sometimes you're going to maybe include an image uh, in there that the customer is not going to really process consciously, but it will have uh, some kind of not subconscious or non-conscious appeal. And then finally, the last element of the slide, which is really my favorite for the last few years, is friction. If you've ever seen a kid get stuck partway down the slide because it's not slippery enough, that's friction at work. And in our framework, it's any kind of difficulty, any kind of effort in the process that slows the customer down or stops them completely. So this and there's is like excessive friction. form box? Uh, yeah, I mean, forms are a great example. You know, you know one of the crazy statistics is uh, the amount of merchandise that is abandoned in e-commerce shopping carts every year. It's like, a, remember, like 4 trillion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's one estimate is uh, more than $4 trillion is abandoned, which is about twice as much, at least in that, that period as the actual sales. So a huge amount of waste, just, you know, think of all wow. the money that went into driving that traffic, all the pay-per-click ads, the social media marketing, the content marketing, the SEO, the web design, you got the customer on your website shopping around, they click, they put it in their shopping cart, but then you fail to get them across the finish line. And when uh, one company analyzed why people leave their stuff in their shopping cart, like four out of the top five reasons were frictional in nature, a complicated checkout process, the need to set up an account rather than checking out as a guest, you know, confusion, hidden charges that they only find out at the end. All of these things are totally avoidable with the right uh, process design, but uh, nevertheless, uh, many companies don't do that. And that, that's why I wrote my most recent book, Friction, because to me, I started thinking about it and I went way beyond just customer experience and got even into employee experience uh, and other areas because 
wasted effort affects every part of human endeavor. Where do you see that within employees? Well, there is, uh, to, I guess, to back up uh, just a step, on employees, uh, there is a huge employee engagement crisis today. The vast majority of employees are not actively engaged, according to Gallup, with their current company. Uh, there are a smaller percentage, like 15% or something, that are actively disengaged, which means they're looking for a job or they just really don't like the company that they're with. But there's a lot more. They just really are showing up for work, uh, you know, putting in their time and then going home to do whatever they really enjoy doing. And a big part of the lack of engagement is a lack of trust. They see that their time is being wasted by bad processes, by having to go through approval steps where they could do it, or the company doing things that they know that could be done better. You know, they see customers struggling with a process and they tell their boss, hey, you know, this is giving our customers a problem. They say, yeah, yeah, we know, but uh, that's not in the budget to fix this year. And when, and they see that in their own activities, you know, when they have a convoluted process for reporting travel expenses. You know, I was, I've fortunately been an entrepreneur. I I say fortunately, because I've enjoyed being an entrepreneur for decades now. But when I sold one of my businesses, I became for a while, a corporate executive again. And despite the fact that I was a VP level, which in that particular organization, there weren't too many VPs. So it was, it was in the higher ranks of the organization. Every tiny travel expense, whether it was like a $2 cup of coffee in the airport, if I wanted to be reimbursed for that, I had to physically attach a paper receipt to my expense report. And that goes way beyond IRS regulations. Uh, they don't require that, but this company did. Uh, later on, I had a chance to ask the CFO, uh, who was also after I'd left the company and he left the company, I said, I was working on my book and I said, hey, do you know why this was required? And he said, well, yeah, management didn't trust that people would be honest about their expense reports. So this lack of trust caused wasted effort for everybody who had to fill out expense reports, which was a lot of people in that company. A lot of people were traveling for sales or other reasons, conferences and so on. Uh, and beyond the extra paperwork, it signaled to them, we don't trust you. And you can't just say, hey, you know, I spent uh, $5 on coffee uh, this day. We want you to prove that with a piece of paper. And then the, uh, the ultimate irony after that was they did streamline the process in a way because, uh, and at one time I, I tested that too. One time I apparently somehow lost the receipt between the time I had filled out the expense report and when it got to corporate headquarters because I got notified, hey, you're missing this $2 receipt. And so I said, okay, just leave it off, you know, change, change the, lower the amount. I don't have a receipt. I don't know what happened to it. But uh, so they were actually, humans were actually reviewing these and matching them up. Well, they went to an electronic process. They uh, then said, okay, now you can take a photo of the receipt or put them, put receipts on a flatbed scanner and label them. You can associate them with a line item on your electronic expense report now at the same time as you assign a, an account code and a job code to each one. Uh, so they massively increased the work for the employee, even though it did streamline the process for the person in accounting who had a process and because now somebody else really did all their work or just said, screw it and <laughs> tossed the receipts. Said, Heck, it's not worth the effort on this one. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it was all a matter of trust. There's some great research by Paul Zak. He is the oxytocin guy. He discovered that oxytocin is the hormone of human trust. Uh, and he and his researchers did some amazing work. They went into a variety 
of high performing and not so high performing companies. And they did a bunch of surveys to ask about different aspects of the employee experience there, uh, including trust in the company and other and their coworkers, their bosses and so on. And they also took thousands of blood samples. And what they found was pretty amazing. High performing companies were high trust companies. And this was measured not just by what people said that, yeah, they feel like their boss trusts them, they trust their boss, but by the oxytocin levels in the blood of the employees of these companies. So, you know, the more that you, uh, as both an employer and also in dealing with customers, can show trust, that will cause reciprocal trust and will certainly cause a higher performance within the company. That doesn't surprise me because oxytocin is our pro-social chemical. That yes, exactly. It's very pro-social of us. And especially as human beings are hardwired to receive this chemical, it's not like it's not like it's exogenously produced, right? We don't have to take something to feel oxytocin inside of us. Uh, no, a, a, a hug will do it, but yeah. uh, there hasn't been a lot of hugging going on in the last year, unfortunately. Yeah, no kidding. It's been, it's been a wild ride and we're seeing a lot of that start to shift in different ways. I know we're, we're getting crunched on time. I do have a few final questions for you. Sure. What's next, man? You've been all over the place with writing everything from you know, neuromarketing books to f- writing about friction and trying to eliminate that within your life and within your business. What's next for you? Well, I've got a couple of sort of a low-key projects I'm working on. No, no big next book, uh, definitely in the works where I'm in full-blown research and writing mode yet, but I've got a couple of sort of seed projects that might grow into something. But really right now, uh, I'm focused on promoting the ideas in friction and turning other people into friction hunters. You know, I see just so much friction every, every day. It's unfortunate, but, uh, you know, people say they know all about friction, but it's not the case. I've had just this week, a couple of high friction experiences. I was on a chat my computer, which is a late model, a rather expensive high-end computer, I was on the support chat with that company. And my com- screen had suddenly lost like the bottom third of its display. So anyway, I'm on there and said, you're number one in chat queue, hang in there. And so I'm sitting there and sitting there waiting, waiting. And after about 20 minutes goes by, I'm wondering what's going on here. I, I'm long time to be number one in queue. After about 25 minutes of waiting, suddenly the screen flips and it says, sorry, chat is closed. Now, you know, I wasted 20, 25 minutes sitting there, number one in queue, not really able to look away that much. Like if I was 27 in queue, I could probably get some work done in another window or something. But, uh, you know, and like that was totally unnecessary. That was a bad process. When I eventually connected through their phone support, that was actually reasonably well done. I got handled right away and they scheduled everything right away and it was it was fine, but a very high friction experience. Uh, another, just this week, uh, I had a package from a major package delivery company who used to guarantee absolutely positively overnight. Uh, this package had been in one of their centers for a week and then another major hub of theirs for a week with no status updates, nothing going on. It was like two weeks behind the promised delivery date and there was no transparency. Now I understand there were some bad weather events in the US in the last month or so, but you know, provide some transparency. Hey, you know, we've got 5 million packages backed up in Memphis. We're working through them at about a million packages a day or we're doing, you know, whatever. But instead uh, it was just radio silence. Like, no problem, no, there's no problem. 
And, you know, they, again, I wasted a lot of effort trying to check on that in, when in, they could have communicated with me proactively, uh, said, hey, we're working on that. We think it's going to be a few more days before it goes anywhere. And I could have planned accordingly. But, you know, there is still so much friction in the world that my goal, at least uh, for the balance of this year, is to create many more friction hunters beyond myself because I've begun when I encounter this, uh, I will tweet about it. Uh, uh, I will share it on other forms of social media. I might even write about it in a blog post someplace. And to me, the more people do this, the more they expose it when they see it, that will call attention to it. And you don't have to have a big platform to do that. You know, just uh, use, I, I've created the friction hunter hashtag that you know, I will certainly reshare uh, and amplify if somebody doesn't have that many followers, because to me, the more we can all focus on it, the better the world will be in the future. That's awesome. And thank you so much for being here today, Roger. My final question for you, it's, it's not necessarily religious in nature, even though the word I use for it kind of is. If you had a prayer for the world right now, what would it be? Hmm. Well, I'll take that in a, a little bit different context. I'll tell you what gospel I preach. I am currently preaching the gospel of easy. You know, if uh, if you can simply focus on easy, whether it is in your it's in your employee processes, your customer processes, or even in your personal life, then you know you will be helping not just yourself, but you will be helping the world. I love it, Roger. Where can people find more about you? How can they learn more about your two books? Well, the best jumping off point is rogerdooley.com. I am on most social media as Roger Dooley, including Twitter and LinkedIn, where I am most active. And also, my, I've got my neuromarketing blog at neurosciencemarketing.com and a Forbes blog. But if you go to rogerdooley.com, you can pretty much find links to all my other stuff there. That's awesome. And it's Dooley with a double O, not yes. a U-L-Y. Right? Yeah, that's right. D-O-O-L-E-Y. Awesome. Which is the way almost everybody spells it, I found, except uh, for a while. Uh, when I was in South Bend, Indiana, there was a well-known printer who had been established for decades in that area, and everybody wanted to spell it with a U. But uh, it's, a, it's a fairly common Irish surname, uh, and 99% uh, of the people spell it O-O, but uh, by golly, not in South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> Roger, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.